Welcome to Centered Subject, our weekly podcast, where we discuss all matters, culture, technology, and human behavior. Oh, wait, where we try to maintain our humanity in the face of technological progress and barrage of news. What else are we trying to do here on the podcast? We think about connection between humans and like humans to themselves sometimes and connection of humans to technology something about that true uh, i think also we touch on history as well on occasion yes we use anecdotes sometimes and we uh, read from uh, primary sources <laughs> <laughs> secondary and tertiary sources as well and we interview people too we've done that before now it's true we have interviewed a person and we will interview more people in the future and i'm yelena i'm jenny and at this moment i'm in houston texas no, I'm in Katy, Texas, wherever that is. And I'm in LA. So how's it going in Katy? It's disconcerting, I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> it's a big suburb, right? Yeah, it's interesting to watch Chernobyl in a big suburb. Oh yeah, that actually introduces our topic for today. We're going to discuss Chernobyl, which is something that um, I, I kind of encountered growing up somewhat and the HBO series came out and people seemed to be interested in it and we decided to uh, weigh in and I was resistant to do that for some reason I don't know why oh well <laughs> <laughs> and I know you had I mean concerns about it and which we'll discuss but um yeah there's been a lot of thinking about repression in the show and I don't know cultural sameness or something and that's maybe more in my mind because I'm in this really culturally repressive suburb and it's a little scary. Like I really wonder what's going on behind all the closed doors and all the mm. lawns and it's not what it seems. It's an exclusion zone. Every house is an exclusion zone basically. And yes, a, the the despotism right. of suburbia is reigning supreme. Lovely. Thank you. <laughs> well said. Thanks. I guess I'll start by um, wait. How is how is LA? I I must know. How's LA? How's LA? LA is actually really beautiful right now. The weather is wonderful, and I've been swimming a lot. <laughs> but cool. I also been watching, you know, all this and reading about Chernobyl, um, which it happens to me actually. I'd say every year. Um, I feel like you know because I read um, sort of Russophone media inevitably in our April, late April. There will be some commemoration of the tragedy you know it usually counts off it's like oh it's been 25 years it's been 26 years you know just sort of there's a kind of countdown um and so this was actually fairly recent right um so i kind of organically was reading something about it uh but then the tv show came out and everyone was um you know i haven't seen it and i haven't want, wanted to watch it because there's just it's it's usually irksome watching something that is um, trying to portray something of Soviet experience in Western media um, because of the you know there's like certain cliches that really flatten out the the socialist life to kind of a green color scheme which was present in the in the HBO version you know this kind of um, dismal, poverty-stricken, which is, you know, somewhat true, but also some not true. Um, anyway, so I usually resist it, and I was skeptical, but, you know, I, there's also decided to watch it. But before I decided to watch it, I wanted to kind of itemize my 
my own experience. So this happened in 86 when I was about to, like the summer before I went to school, um, I was just finishing kindergarten. So I really have a lot of memories from that time. And I talked to my mom a couple of days ago before watching and I asked her what she remembered. Because, you know, the child, your memories kind of, I'm not sure which what is fictional, you know, and what is actually my memory. My mom had this really distinct memory of the 2nd of May. Um, so this happened right before the big holiday, which we, I guess, you and I discussed during May Day. So May Day was a big deal in Soviet Union. Everyone would parade around with, you know, balloons and whatnot. So I guess, you know, I think we had kind of a domestic holiday that day. But on the 2nd of May, my childhood boyfriend (laughs) stopped by the apartment, you know, he wanted us to go play outside. And my mom said it was just this beautiful, sunny, sunny, gorgeous day. And, you know, you guys were playing out all day, you know, outside, just playing outside of our um, you know, concrete block apartments of which you see many in um, in Chernobyl TV show. And then she, you know, a few days later, well, Gorbachev did an announcement. People were already starting to hear about it, like in the next few days. And then Gorbachev did an announcement on May 14th, and she was just horrified that she let me out. And she just kept thinking, oh, if only I would have not let me go out. And that really haunted her, I guess. And then she said another interesting thing. She said, you know, and people were talking about drinking, taking iodine pills, but I was not doing any of it. I was just waiting for, you know, for the government to announce it, which is, again, interesting because, you know, my dad was a physicist and there was a Geiger counter around and I remember dairy products because, you know, Belarus is on the border and the south of Belarus is like right next to Chernobyl and that's a big like dairy production area. They would bring dairy stuff and, you know, the way that my mom talked really brings out that kind of mindset of wait for the government to tell me. But then I was like, is it just a Soviet thing? I feel like it's kind of a, is it not an American thing as well? Like wait for someone to tell me? It is, it is. Or that's the libertarian come in because that's why they want to have guns, I guess. I think it's a little bit less like that. Have you been through a hurricane? You have, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think my, my only experience of that sort of thing is going through hurricanes here and in Houston, I, I was there. Yeah, I went once Once it happened where we were all sort of trying to leave town, stuck on the freeway. Yeah, Right. I think there's there's a couple moments right after the scary thing happens when you're looking for the government to comment. And then if they don't, then immediately people start doing their own thing. And I think that maybe that happens more quickly. I know in Texas, because Texas itself has this sense of itself as like libertarian and I'm going to do whatever the hell I want anyway. Yeah. It doesn't have a lot of respect for the government to begin with. So, um, but also in New York, having gone through like September 11th, I remember that maybe might be more in line with what the rest your mom's most response was like, because I remember being in the city because people do respect the government in the city. And right after that happened, sitting there waiting for someone from the government, I like having the desire for someone from the government to make a statement mm-hmm. at all after September 11th to make sure things were mm-hmm. okay. I'm surprised now thinking back that I wanted that to happen myself, but I remember that. Mm-hmm. And not really being comforted by like Giuliani, but being comforted by the news guys talking about it mm-hmm. and how they talked about it. But then having this sinking feeling as a young, a very young adult that, uh oh, wait, maybe we do need to make our own decisions and 
do things ourselves. And, yeah. yeah. It's a really scary moment, but it's interesting how you get used to it or you develop an awareness of it as time moves on. Yeah. I think the next things I remember that sort of happened for me as a kid, that there were a lot of anecdotes and little jokes that, you know, kids would exchange that had something to do with the kind of mutancy, the kind of mon- monstrosity of mutants that would come about, you know, like jokes about like the yeah. girls with right. two heads and, you know, things like that. Well, so I didn't know that you, as I was watching it, I didn't know that you grew up so close to Chernobyl because there were a lot of people that were like from the Belarusian you know, Institute of, you know, Nuclear Technology. Right, from Minsk. That's where I lived. Yeah, yeah, right. But your family didn't get evacuated and they didn't really do anything specific to your area where you were, right? No. Minsk was, I mean, it's close, but it was not, you know, it's not as close as, like, Kiev or Pripyat. It's close enough, but it's just a bit further. I mean, right. I mean, I suppose they probably would have been wise maybe to evacuate everyone but obviously that was not you know it's like a huge capital city no one was gonna did they give everybody iodine no oh no they should have that would have been a good idea (laughs) i think it also happened at that time where kind of soviet union was already collapsing and it definitely was one of i would say that it feels in retrospect as one of the kind of ideological columns that you know with holding up whatever the state and ideology was like Chernobyl really knocked it down I feel like so but it was already kind of economically suffering and and centralization already was not working very well because it was you know it was a centralized economy from Moscow radiating outwards so I think that was just um kind of a side effect of that plus I think the disaster on that scale never had happened and no one really even knew. And it wasn't a natural disaster, and it was right. it was a human-made disaster of epic proportions. So it was like there was no yeah. context for it. Yeah, that was what was so yeah. alarming. Also, the other thing that was I think you're speaking about a little bit was like the denial that the city that the city state and you know the the national government had at the beginning that like very strong denial and the repression of the truth and right. manipulation of the truth you know, kind of pushing back anybody who had a, an idea that was uh, in contrast to what the party line was or whatever. Mm-hmm. That was really scary. I think that was a rhetorical device that the, or, I mean, it probably happened also, but I think it was a, you know, theatrical device that the filmmakers were using. No, I don't think it was. I mean, like I was, I'm responding to it because it's like, oh, wow, that seemed really powerful. But I'm like, I'm, I mean, I'm sure it was a thing. I'm sure it's always a thing. But maybe my question, this is my question then. When things are going badly, was there a system, like a government system that was repressive? Like if it was something that would be seen negatively by the wider world? Yes. Do you feel like maybe because it was breaking down, they were more likely to like put a lid on things that would make them look worse? Yeah, and I mean, that wasn't even when things were going badly I think that was just the kind of because it was such a heavily ideological country you know where the narrative meant so much um, that it you know it really superseded the reality of event the kind of the way that the events were narrated was supremely important because it was a symbol in a way you know sort of a symbol of a certain order it was an experiment if you will so it it was very important to control the way that it was talked about and I think that's just um, another another aspect of that and actually, you know, that reminds me, I also, another thing that I watched, um, until it's like really hard to watch, it like made me kind of, well, it makes me a bit sick and 
But um, there's a documentary that someone made in 1986. So right after it happened, there were um, there was a crew of documentary filmmakers that really wanted, you know, just felt like they needed to document it. And they went right there and, you know, they filmed, they like got on the roof. They filmed, it's just, it's terrifying footage because, you know, it's also radiation obviously exposes um, film. Mm-hmm. So it's, oh my God. it's just this eerie kind of surreal glowing neon black and white sepia that's, mm-hmm. you know, inversed almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, like everyone died like a year after um, mm-hmm. that filmed it. But a lot of it, you know, a lot of it was just this really, horrifying footage and I'll post screenshots to your Instagram um, of you know of just this, this terrifying destruction and people in this flimsy the flimsy masks you know just these young soldiers and mm-hmm. and then parallel to that you know so you just see that the, like the kind of the horrific way in which they were handling it and then parallel to that it's just this narrative of the party is taking full control of the situation and we will show all the demagogues and, you know, people that don't understand Soviet Union. It's just this, that narrative is, you know, that, that's a kind of the soundtrack that's basically mm-hmm. of this kind of alternate reality of, like, mm-hmm. having, can you just see that things are out of control, but the narrative is that there's the control and the party is there for you and mm-hmm. the people and the party. And, and then there's just something mesmerizing about that, I guess. I can imagine how that mm-hmm. would also provide comfort to people yeah. watching it at the time because it is also such a familiar litany. You know, I heard so much of it as a kid and for me it was almost like lulling me into into this kind of stupor of safety <laughs> in a way because it's such familiar language. So that, that language was there and that narrative and rhetoric was all over it. I'm interested in how power got expressed and like these two governments were competing, you know, in the Cold War and doing a lot of war of information and war of posturing, you know, in the nuclear posturing. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because the American and I don't think I can very well characterize like the American, you know, political message that was trying to be put out at the time. But in a documentary I watched about Cold War hysteria in America, there was a lot of like strike first and answer later. And this cowboy sensibility of like, you're not going to mess with us because we're going to mess with you first. Mm -hmm. And the leader as being this like completely solitary cowboy that will not really protect the populace. Like it's definitely a much more individualistic culture, but similar to maybe like some of the things you were saying about Chernobyl there was like this disconnection completely from what was done with, you know, Nagasaki and Hiroshima on the ground, you know, and managing that information to be taken yeah. away from the American people and just focusing all people's attention on a victory. Yeah, on the might and on the preemptive action. Yeah, I mean, you direct the attention. I mean, that's the job of um, a well-conducted media campaign. You sort right. of, you diffuse and distract and you you know, point at the thing that you right. want people, the public opinion to turn to. Oh, well, and there's something in both cases about the fact that this nuclear energy and this, this power that was harnessed by science and then used by man mm-hmm. uh, did so much unexpected or unimagined damage that it was like almost impossible for these like 
social personas to contain. I think that's an interesting thing about that time, but I think that that is still playing out now, you know? Our, our actions and our confidence in some ways uh, are being argued with by the results that happen in nature or, I don't know, like plastic in the ocean or, you know, global warming is, is because of our actions. And we didn't plan that. We didn't expect it. We just kind of were proud of our own ability to make products and continue and compete in a, in a world Economy. It's interesting that one, you know, when you're on one side of the conflict, Cold War in this case, uh, that, you know, whereas here, the attention was diverted to the ultimate goal um, that the bombing achieved in Soviet Union, it was definitely, um, the attention was, in fact, on the kind of peripheral effects, Chernobyl-like um, radiation effects, because that's something that was so, I remember I guess today is all about my, my childhood, but when I was in kindergarten, there were so many weird events in which we somehow read a little story about a tragic child that lived in Hiroshima or survived Hiroshima. And at some point we were like making, you know, we were learning how to make these little cranes, um, yeah. which were sort of somehow related to the anti-nuclearization weapons. And, you know, I think that knowledge of, of also what happened, like the radiation effects was really strong throughout. And so I think there was always, and the sense of responsibility was very much placed, the onus and always on the Americas as yeah. the source of as the source of that harm. Well, it was interesting for us because they would talk about that sort of thing, sort of, in a way but never go really to the depth of what we did. And I remember when we learned about it in high school, I was in this really nice history class that was kind of advanced, and the teacher was uh, sort of countercultural to some extent. And uh, she told us straight out, and we read about it, and I remember a bunch of the kids in our class got so angry. We just like started yelling and freaking out, and she just kind of stood there and let us, you know, accept what it was and accept what... What do you mean she told you about the kind of... Yeah, about what Hiroshima was and that our government did it on purpose and knowing that it would kill that many people. And, you know, and then there was this the debate that ensued between some classmates. And I remember I was one of the big people that was having the debate about, like, it doesn't matter. They said, you know, oh, it, it ended World War II and a lot more deaths would have happened if we hadn't done this. And we were saving everybody else. And it was our, yeah. you know, we were heroic for doing this because we ended the war. And I was like, no, this can never be a good thing. This is, you know, yeah. it was it was out of out of bounds it was un unnecessary and yeah i had a great loss of faith for my government in that moment and it hasn't really changed you know and mistrust and it, i thought it was really yeah. great the way she held that space for the discussion among these kids who were kind of like their hearts were breaking in some ways and and we felt like we'd been lied to a lot of my friends and i i think yes i, I mean every official line usually lies somewhat <laughs> to beautify the truth, yeah. not unusual. Um, but yeah, technology is—it um, is sort of a horrifying technology, and and very much I think illustrates how often we go in pursuit of scientific inquiry and technology that somehow will change human lives, yeah. and it does. But it essentially just magnifies the sort of awful sides. I think often instead of elevating us, right? It makes it look like it's going to be easy, and the and the complexities and and ambiguities of human life are going to suddenly disappear. I don't remember if you told me this, but I I know for sure that um, my dad is really was really as a child in the fifties was really obsessed with is a scientist now and mm -hmm. back then he was really obsessed with living on the moon and oh. he still if you get him going will like 
tell you all about how great it would be to this day if, you know, we end up living with Elon Musk on the moon or wherever. Oh. <laughs> Elon Musk is trying to get them to go. He's placed his trust in Elon Musk. Oh. <laughs> That's a beautiful <laughs> poem. I love that. We were making, you and I were making our puppet show about space. We did make a puppet show about moon landing. So true. It was awesome. But I remember when we were researching for it, we were like in the Rice Library and we found all these books about colonizing the moon. All these like awesome dreams yeah. that lots of people had in the 60s, particularly that like we were certainly going to colonize the moon and that was going to solve all our problems. Yeah. There's a breed of man that's about 75 it's true american probably i'm not sure about that but american who just like is really all about going to the moon or like excited about when the robots take over oh yes like, i have this new theory that, that i'll like if a man is 75 and a scientist i will be like hey what do you think about if robots take over and 90 of the time they're really excited about it Like, they don't have a dystopian. Oh, no. I wouldn't even say that it's limited to a man over 75. I recently um, <sighs> was somewhere, and I overheard someone talk really excitedly about an art project that they saw, and it was essentially a giant robotic arm that was, I think, moving red paint about, which just, to me, just sounded like the most horrific idea. Oh, of, I've seen that. Oh, okay, I haven't. So, yeah, I mean, to me, that just seemed like an illustration of, the, you know, the arm comes and destroys the humanity by smashing it all into blood. Yeah. And then and instinctively shy away from it. Well, I shy away from it, but then I use all, all the spine technologies. My interpretation of that piece that I saw a video of was this. Whose is it? Is it a, whose work is it? I do you know. I forget. I don't. I saw okay. it. Okay, we'll uh, we'll find it and put it in notes. It's pretty famous. I mean, it it does look like the uh, the arm is scraping blood. Yeah, it looks like it just repeatedly. I think the artist is making a statement like that. I don't think it's necessarily a celebration. Well, whoever was talking about it was definitely excited about the possibilities of the arm doing whatever it was doing. Um, ah. The freedom of the arm to do. Yeah, we have evolved <laughs> to create this arm that does this thing. Mm. I think that's where the excitement was um, situated for that person. Right. Who, I think it was a man. Yes, of course it was a man. <laughs> well, I yeah, I think that my, my female... I don't necessarily want to gender it, but I I have a lot of distrust. I have a I have some distrust in the medical, not necessarily in all medical things, but in science to some extent because of all the stuff that happened with um you know with women in the like gynecological science and things like even in the '60s and different weird things and how women were institutionalized for hysteria, like even in the 40s and 50s. Oh, that was earlier. I think that was like the 10th and 20th. There was like mechanical dildos to calm them down. Yeah. Well, that sounds like an interesting, good idea, but... <laughs> That's the technology. <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> you can get behind. Yeah. Well, then, you know, it's just a short leap to the robotic arm. Just <laughs> give it, make yeah. it a bit longer and there you go. <laughs> I have a question or, or just like connecting our two episodes, our last episode and this episode together. Um, were you finding that as you were watching it, you were having physical responses to what you were? <laughs> yes, I threw up twice. Oh, no. So why? It was like very physical. What happened? You became afraid? Well, I think it really brought out the childhood 
a memory, you know, because it was so horrifying mm. to me. Because of, you know, there was obviously like a lot of uh, kind of preparatory work done on the brain with all the Hiroshima kindergarten stuff. There was also some book that I was, I learned to read. And there's a book at my grandmother's, um, it was just had this really romantic illustration. It was, you know, with orange, there was a little boat and it just looked like a childhood book. A children's book, and I read it, um, and it was about this heiress um, from California that goes sailing in the Pacific Ocean. But meanwhile, American government is testing nuclear weapons, and she dances. There's uh, suddenly there's snow, and she's excited, and she dances. You know, under the snow, it's sort of this romantic moment. But of course, it's just radioactive fallout. Whoa! And then you know, the rest of the book is just her collapse you know like very vivid descriptions of her just kind of coming apart the way that they did in Chernobyl and I think that also blended somehow in my consciousness and after Chernobyl I was just I think there was like a long time that I was terrified of rain and snow Mm. um, because you know I was worried that it was radioactive and um, watching these scenes you know of people obviously was so graphic and in the Mm -hmm. in the tv show of you know this black and blue disintegrating bodies was just it just was I don't know how anyone can really watch it without becoming sick it's so visceral this yeah it's just so upsetting when like cellular literally cellular level and I know don't you feel kind of like you've been affected by radiation as you watch it it's just it's invisible as well it's invisible so it's sensory and yeah and it's not normal it's not the normal type of physical discomfort or even danger that we are I feel like programmed to be aware of it's like this new hidden type of danger and so because of that it feels like anything could then become I found myself becoming paranoid like psychologically paranoid to a level that I was like "Uh uh-oh this isn't good I'm glad I'm not constantly thinking about this all the time like I felt myself getting kind of itchy yeah and suspect and then and super angry at the same time there was like a yeah and then happy that it was uh, a historical show and that it was well designed and it was well acted I was just like kind of praying to the show like and thanks for it being aesthetically a really lovely show in many ways you know like I feel like it was done really well and I loved and I, I'm still watching it but I love a lot of these actors in any way and I love a lot of their acting I think it's really nice so I'm happy for that because it kind of it helps me through this difficult kind of physiological experience but I was thinking a lot about you because like your actual experience was you know not disconnected from this time this time and then this region I had no idea that you were so close and then I've seen photos of you at when it, as a little girl with these same big white bows in your hair and I saw little girls <laughs> right. in the show with those <laughs> bows on and I felt very protective of them you know I was just like I know. oh no you know I, I felt yeah a lot of protection so horrific yeah yeah it's was I don't like the word but I think it, it was triggering yeah it makes sense I mean, it's in your lived experience. Oh, I wanted to also say, I just remembered something also about the documentary, um, which is really powerful. But so they they do this horrific film. I just can't believe they did that. But, you know, they sort of fly into it and we watch them do it. And then, you know, in this grave voice, the narrator says, radiation, it is impossible to see. It doesn't have a, a visual. It does not have a face, but it has a sound. And then they turn on the Geiger counter, you know, as they survey this bleached landscape it's just it's really horrific and the geiger counter is of course going off you know at like million that's the itchy beats 
per second or something. The itchy sound. Because it's so man-made, right? I mean, it is a man-made creation, so it's not like... Why do we have this TV show now? Like, why now? And I mean, it does. I think it does portray... I think because of climate change, for sure. Really? I think, yeah. to me, what was... I thought annoying though about this portrayal of Soviet Union, which was it was portrayed still a bit to you know it it had this vestige of post Chernobyl rather than pre Chernobyl because that's just not things were just not that green in real life you know they just weren't yeah. the, the way that they're sort of tinted there and I thought yeah. now that you know at least in America and I guess well I guess in in the UK in England it was always kind of on the table like sort of leftist ideas socialism that's kind of coming back yeah. in the states it's really for the first time in many many years I feel like since like in the 30s it was sort of popular to join the communist party this is the first time that we're having these discussions of state being helpful and socialism right. and and so it just seemed to me that it was in this situation that event is kind of the one of the most horrifying ones that were that maybe occurred in Soviet Union. Yeah. So to say that this is what socialism can do. Yeah. So in a way, uh. but at the same time, it's it's sort of it's tr- it's fairly truthful. I mean, except for the female scientist who is a conglomeration of different people. Mm. Yeah, I have a question about her, but I I like this point. Well, I was really connecting to the fact that there were all these systems of power and. I mean, there were literal lines where they talked about what was a fact and what wasn't a fact. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it was very much like a tongue in cheek, like alternative facts. And then the scientists are the heroes Mm -hmm. in the show and they have to fight the government system, which are repressing them Mm -hmm. and and repressing the truth because of power. And then the people who are in power are stupid. They're anti-intellectual to some extent. And Mm -hmm. then the intellectuals who own the truth are like, you know, have to fight. Not very hard. I mean, the moment when Emily Watson's character is just like, please arrest me and bring me to the highest, to the highest person of highest power. Then suddenly she's there and she gets to like, wow them with her nuclear genius, you know, and then she gets to save the day like that. That wasn't that hard. But so like, in a way, I think the show is, is saying that we need to listen to the climate change scientists and that in contemporary America mm. we have all these problems because we're just obsessed with power and we're stuck in this kind of gross political dying maybe political system similarly and Trump is an idiot and yeah he's not he's he's very much like a Brezhnev or you know one of the the last calcifying Soviet leaders he really re- yeah. reminds me of them and it's the whole the whole thing is very similar the pomp you know right. the party line the, the slogans I mean yeah he would love to do that parades he loves parades yeah. you know it just he would love to be that guy I mean I mean he's a cold war child so it makes sense yeah. and he's friends with tons of Russian oligarchs I mean he literally oh, yeah he, and he loves Putin he literally wants to do that I mean he that's does. a no-brainer and I guess what they're trying to say is that much like you know the graphite is on the ground and people die from tu- <laughs> from tu- I'm sorry I can't even <laughs> I know I'm sorry don't vomit um, that we're in a very dire moment in climate change and it's like that is our same moment and yeah. we can make a change if we have to and our governments need to act and all of that I think I really do think this is all part of it mm. I do yeah I think sure yeah I can yeah. I can see that yeah and it scares the shit out of me and I guess that's what they want you to do yeah. they want you to be a afraid and angry and act you know yeah. which is which is the right thing i think yeah it's making me freak out especially here because when i'm in new york where i have to say like a, a major moment just happened for housing activism 
And I'm really excited about it. And I was like a teeny tiny bit part of that movement. And it was like the first movement I've ever been. And quickly, can you recap what happened? Yeah. So there's now a Democratic House and Senate in Albany in the New York state government. And that's the first time that's happened in a really long time. And one of the main things they were doing is trying to protect rent stabilization. And then there was a new movement um, put out by a bunch of housing organizations, but one of them, um, Metropolitan Council on Housing, which is like a really old uh, housing uh, activism organization since, you know, one of the only ones in the city. And so they protected rent stabilization to some extent going forward, but they didn't go back and uh, help the people whose apartments had been destabilized. Um, and they took a lot of the weird manipulating power away from the landlords. Uh, there were a lot of reasons people were evicted wrongly. It was poor people and people in middle class people were being kicked out of their houses and are being kicked out of their houses in record numbers. And until New York will really only be financially habitable by really wealthy people. So yeah, the state government uh, acted and a lot of activism happened to make that happen. And it finally, you know, there was a tangible achievement, essentially, from what people made. Yeah, it wasn't as far as it didn't help me. I mean, I still had to leave my apartment because of a lot of these loopholes. But um, it's a really great step. And I'm really excited about it. So when I'm there, and I when I'm in New York, I actually do feel like things are moving forward particularly at this moment. And now having come back to Texas and in this rather restrictive neighborhood in a really Republican place, in this very restrictive Texas place, it makes me a lot more worried about the future to some extent. I feel confused about our country, just like from where I'm sitting, mm -hmm. you know, because I, yeah. the grass is really green, but I know there's a lot of pollution happening to keep it green. And yeah. the children are running, you know, on the green grass, but it just it feels very false. It seems like too green. It's a too emerald to be real. Somehow. Yeah, yeah, too green. And why? And I'm watching Chernobyl. And you I know things should not be saturated. Also, the green is the primary tone that you find in Chernobyl cinematography. Yeah, I can see how these, these concepts overlap. Yeah. I have a few horrific jokes. Oh, thank goodness. I need some right now. Okay, I looked up some jokes. Um, you know, I couldn't remember any jokes from childhood, but I just knew they existed. So I looked them up and they're in Russian, so let me try it, see if I can translate. Okay, so two people are talking and then one says, you know, my health is affected by Neptune. I was born under his sign. The second person says, and mine is affected by uranium. Oh, did you, were you born under its sign? No, I was working in Chernobyl on the fourth energy block. <laughs> so this is like a little bit LA because it's kind of about astrology, but it's also mm -hmm. horrifying. I don't understand. Oh, okay. So basically, you know, like uranium is part of, it's like a fission. It's one of the elements. Yeah. So Neptune is like... A planet? Like, you know, it's like a planetary thing. You know, it's like a, yeah. an astrological Neptune. It's not Uranus, it's uranium. Sorry, right? it's not Uranus. Exactly, he said Uranus, but it's, but it, oh, in Russian, it's the same. Oh. It's, on, it's Uran, Uran. So it's like Uran, Uranus, Uran, ah, uranium. Yes. Oh, well, there, there you go. It lost in translation. Okay, let's try another one. It's still somewhat funny. It is funny. Okay, let's try this one. So this is just an anecdote from that you hear not two people talking, but this is just from the side, uh, maybe in the news. Ukraine is opening Chernobyl for tourists. It will be like Disneyland, but the two-meter mouse is will be real. Uh-huh. Like it. 
Okay. I get it. Should I train one more? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so they grew in Chernobyl, the largest cucumber in the world, and then they took it to the International Agricultural Exhibition in Paris. But on the way there, cucumber ate everyone. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Okay. I really like jokes translated from Russian directly also. <laughs> Just <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> they're very simple and serious. Like, there's no fucking around. And then the cucumber ate everyone. <laughs> I guess that's also my simultaneous translation um, issues. Yeah, that's that's true. I have an interesting thing I learned about nature that I think is relevant, or I'd like to make it relevant. Well, what is it? Uh, I started reading this book called Braiding Sweetgrass, and it is a book about botany and indigenous culture, uh, wisdom about nature. And so there's this woman, my friend is an herbalist, and I am a little, I'm not completely skeptical of herbalism, but a little bit I am. Um, I have taken, you know, some herbal remedies for some of my like allergy ailments and they, they work and you know, most medicines are made from plants. So there isn't, you know, total bullshit in it, but I have this friend and uh, she suggested this book to me after basically curing me of a major allergy attack, like five minutes after it giving me like this tincture and my allergies abated having had nettles, which are, you know, I know them as like a medieval remedy for the same ailment. Mm. Oh, yeah, right. I know of nettles. Yeah. yeah, nettles are good. Nettles are solid. So, But I was amazed because I'd never had a tincture of them. So it happened so quickly that, and so completely that I was pretty alarmed and amazed, you know. And so I was listening to this friend and she was telling me about this book. And in the book, which is really beautiful if you're looking for a summer read because there are lots of it's a the woman's a botanist and she will tell you stories about different plants and how they interact, but also use indigenous folktales and stories and things from her life and her you know generations of her family's wisdom to talk about the plant. And um, in one of the stories, there's a really great one about pecan trees. Basically, though, the one of the things is that pecan trees only fruit together at the same time among like 40 pecan trees for some reason. They will, even if one is dying or like really sick and it can't really produce fruit, they will all decide in some way. And this isn't like mm. mythologically decide. This is like biologically. Mm -hmm. They will all decide to fruit at the same time, but they won't fruit at the same time every year and they won't necessarily fruit every year. They'll just fruit if it's right, but they'll only do it if it's right for every plant, which is very mysterious and biologists are, have a hard time trying to figure it out. Hmm. And then she went, which I just find amazing. So there's this maybe Soviet perspective, like all or nothing. There's no individualism among these particular trees, but I don't know enough about trees yet to find out if there are individualistic trees, you know. But anyway, different species definitely act differently in terms of group culture and individual culture, which I find interesting. And then another, the big thing that I found really interesting was about communication between trees. And she said there are two th main theories among botanists. One is that that the wind brings different hormones from tree to tree and trees can pick up the hormones. So like if one tree is very troubled by a pest, mm. they will send out like a warning pheromone or some sort of smell or enzyme on the wind. And mm. then other trees of its same species will pick it up too and then will build up the same defense mechanism against that pest. 
very interesting. Mm. Um, so that's one theory. And this is like, these are very common botanists and things like put forth these theories of why different interesting things like this happen. The other one, which is my personal favorite, is that beneath the ground, there are uh, rhizomes and fungi and everything and mushrooms. And that there are lots of theories that mushrooms and fungus are the way that trees communicate or all life and like plant life communicates with one another. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it's like a singular organism throughout the planet. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all connecting. I love that. Mm -hmm. So I've been thinking about that a lot because I'm sitting at my parents outside watching my mom. My mom has this really exciting bird feeder with hundreds, lots and lots and lots of birds all the time. And I'm trying to figure out while I'm reading this book how they're all the birds are communicating with one another and what are they doing and I find it really interesting and there's definitely all these things that are happening that I can't perceive and then I'm thinking about the trees and then watching Chernobyl and thinking about the radiation traveling across the planet Mm -hmm. and you know thinking about how nature is doing so many things that I don't understand right yeah and then having man's actions do these things that affect all of those very subtle connections at the same time well biodiversity is at its kind of utmost high um in the exclusion zone yeah where birds and animals and plants can just live right to their radioactive hearts content (laughs) yeah and then they do and it's really beautiful when you look um, look for images i mean there of course some mutations right it made me think of um somehow oh man-made so there's just something about you said about the man-made i often think especially seeing the footage in both the Chernobyl documentary and the TV show when they show the landscape of housing mm. you know these blocks that repeat the gridded buildings with little windows um which i actually love but they made me think of man-made mountains that sort of an idea i had I think after I left, you know, I, when I look at images, they create this horizon line mm. that is reminiscent of mountainous crests. And I think somehow the Anthropocene is just, I guess it encapsulates the Anthropocene to me, these kind of repeated blocks and the man-made life, the man-made nature, this other nature, mm. um, which had its own disaster and its own invisible communication through yeah. radio waves and yeah. and radio radioactive fallout happening right now i have to add yes yes it is that we're you know we're engaging in it right now we are yes mm-hmm. although there's a cable somewhere out there that's connecting it's not it's not quite invisible though at the same time i think mm-hmm. the invisibility is maybe not the right word but maybe unconscious we're unconscious of a lot of the technological processes but they are tangible um sometimes hidden from you in many ways yeah makes me feel very small and kind of strange we are we're small (laughs) small and strange (laughs) we're not very tall either we're just small Mm -hmm. another thing i wanted to bring up is um well disaster porn Mm -hmm. um because there are also a lot of music videos you know when i was sort of reviewing uh, chernobyl as location you know a cinematic location of course there's just a lot of music videos that were shot there Mm. There's like one by Suede. Suede. Remember Suede? Yeah, I do remember Suede. There's one by Pink Floyd also. Really? <laughs> yeah. 
What are they doing? I have no idea. The old guys like went back there and hung out. It's just sort of footage of the abandoned classrooms. Oh, I see. And um, abandoned town preserved. Right. Well, if you want to be dystopian, that's kind of the best place to go. I guess. I guess that's where you want to go. Yeah, that's your mm-hmm. that's your like ground zero for dystopia. Yeah. But on, also since Chernobyl, we also there was also Fukushima. Yeah. And there's not really a lot of footage from that that I've encountered. There's stories, but not so much visual evidence. I guess there's just something striking about Chernobyl because because it also Soviet Union collapsed. And so it remains this kind of evidence of a of yeah. a country that's gone. It's a town that's also It's something yeah, it's hubristic or something. It's a metonym. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid also I was reading these books by Russian emigres that came, you know, escaped Soviet Union and went to France and England and then wrote this nostalgic books. But yeah, I guess Chernobyl in a way well, it's not really nostalgic. But yeah, there's just something similar about it, you know, about watching these shows set in the country that's no longer there. Mm-hmm. It was really hard for me to imagine how you can continue, you know, you, because the country seems so stable, like the, the social order and the country, you know, everything seems very kind of stable when you're a kid. You're like, this is the world. This is the right. world that I know it. And then this is know, my president. This is my, yeah. yeah. And then you read it. I felt like that. <laughs> right. And then you, yeah, it just seems very stable and forever. Right. And then you're reading about how it's like, what? The same place was like just totally different. There was a czar, mm-hmm. like, it's just so odd. And now I find myself in that, in that place as well. I, I think a lot, of people had that when Trump became president because I had it a little bit, but I know a lot of people who had freaked out because they had this sense of the way things were going to be in the future and it was going to be more centrist. It was never going to go extreme on either side. It was always going to be centrist and he's just not at all what was supposed to ever happen. And so their whole faith in America is, you know, challenged. Yeah. And I think that like the current election that's coming up, I think is, is about, whether or not we're going to be, you know, become, come back to center, become this thing that we've been the last mm. 60 years as a country or something, or are we going to... Like, as if that's so great, though. I know, I, I agree. You know, I think that that kind of, again, this nostalgic thinking is, is always, a, it's tricky. You kind of yeah. pick out the bright, glistening moments. Yeah, it's so scary to be here because I don't I think they're pretty Trumpy here, but it's less to me about their political views because everyone in the this South is very polite and no one is very pushy, even though I walk around feeling like a freak and they're gonna yell at me. But walking around looking at like clothing stores and stuff, there's this very like coherent sense of nostalgia in the clothes. And it's almost like... Mm, For what? Nostalgia for what? I don't know. I'm just like walking in the... The 50s? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like walking in this mall today and I'm like looking at these advertisements. Wow, you went to a mall. I went to the mall, dude. I can't believe it. It was all right. I, I was kind of against my will, but... I did it. And I got some $7 sunglasses. It's okay. (gasps) It's bright. I don't know. So I was driven. I don't even drive. It was, you know, it was very like New Yorker, lost New York. It's dystopian for New Yorker. Totally, totally dystopian. I was a bit kidnapped, but it wasn't, it was not unpleasant. But yeah, walking in the mall, seeing all these images of like polo ads and just all of these, they don't, all of the stores just have all of these white people wearing really repressive 1950s outfits with this like deep nostalgia. And I just used to think of it as preppy. But now seeing it as the only thing that's presented and all of the people I'm looking at are pretty much white, it's like, no, it's nostalgia for white supremacy. 
and like nostalgia for white waspy Christian values and like rich people. And that's what that is. And maybe it's like post Trump, my perspective has changed a little bit, but it, it creeped me out actually a lot. Like, how can you guys put these images up here? They look so racist. And yeah, nobody seemed to mind in the mall. (laughs) Trying to think what the alternative would be that wouldn't speak that. Well, I don't know. I just, I go to the same, I've been to like similar malls in New York and it just, it doesn't seem that, that white. And it doesn't seem that proud of the certain, certain traditionalist culture. The South. Yeah. Well, the South, yeah. you know, with its seersucker whites and all these things. Yeah. And even, even downtown Houston, cause I'm not in downtown Houston, you know, it's, it's sort of, you're not allowed to celebrate this culture in the same way. Mm. And maybe because there's a ton of white people here mm. and that, you know, it's pretty exclusionarily white. It feels the celebration of that in that these very subtle ways feels really disturbing. Mm. Yeah, I want to go home. <laughs> Chernobyl. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's a it's relaxing uh, to watch Chernobyl because at least yeah. that was in the past. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, escaping to the horrific past. Yeah. Yeah, it gives you a sense of survival somehow. And it does. things are going to be feel safe. Yeah, it does make me feel like I like acting in some way yeah. in, in this world, but I'm not sure. I think that's all for today, and hopefully the listeners are not too sad. And we'll be back next week. Jenny is actually not going to be here next week. That's right. But instead, we'll have a guest, and we'll go further east for one more week and explore some more post-Soviet aspects of existence. Very good. So tune in again and again. Tell your friends, follow us on Instagram and Twitter and have a great week. See you later. Bye. Bye.